Well, good morning, everybody. Hadn't it been great to worship the Lord at Hillcrest this morning? Amen. Amen. It's good to be able to see you today. Great to welcome those of you that are at Spanish Trail this morning. I'm sure you all are looking good over there this morning, and I pray that you've had a wonderful time of celebrating in song and through music as we have here at the Nine Mile Campus. And then to those of you that are tuning in uh, on your computer or your smart device, wherever you may be, we welcome you and are so thankful that you're taking time this morning to join us as we worship the Lord together here in Pensacola, Florida. I'm thankful to live where I live. Beautiful state, wonderful people, and uh, we're so thankful that God has blessed and anointed our church family and continues to use us in a way to push back the darkness, not only in our corner of the world, but literally all over the world. So we celebrate today. And I'm excited this morning to get into the Word. Are you all ready to study the Bible this morning? Amen. We're in Acts chapter 19 together again today as we continue in our Sense series. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday, if you were here with us or joined with us last week. We started the first of a two-part message from the first half of Acts chapter 19 on the subject ministry by the book. We are now in Paul's third missionary journey and uh, of the three that he makes uh, that are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. In fact, maybe this would be a good time for us to revisit our famous map uh, once again this morning to make sure that we're all on the same page together. And so guys, if you've got that, put that up on the screen. And I want everybody to notice in the yellow shaded section on the far right, Paul, for the third time now, moves outward from his home church, which is the church at Antioch, his sending church. He moves north by northwest through his native country. You can see he stops there in Tarsus, which was his hometown. And he works his way into the green region, which is South Galatia. For the third time, Paul visits these four cities of South Galatia in his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas founded churches there. And on the subsequent two, he made sure to go back and spend time with them to make sure that healthy growth was happening. From there, he moves into the red region in the center part of your screen, which is the region of Asia, and makes his way to the city of Ephesus there on the Aegean coast. Now, contrary to the way this map makes it look, makes it look like Paul's moving all over the place. He's really stable in this particular missionary journey more than either of the first two. He's going to get to Ephesus and stay there for nearly three years. And so this is fundamentally a missionary campaign to one of the most important cities of the then known world. Ephesus was huge, somewhere between three and 500,000 people, an important commercial center, an important religious center. I think Paul wanted to go there on his second missionary journey, but God wanted him to wait until the third. He ends up in Macedonia instead, but he hangs around in Ephesus where we'll find him in our study today. When he's finished there, he'll retrace his steps through the second missionary journey. He'll go up to Troas, across to Macedonia, revisit the cities in Macedonia that he had founded churches on his second missionary journey, go down into the green region of Achaia, which is Greece as we know it, spend time there in Corinth. It was a troubled church, and Paul will spend a little more time there before then, retracing his steps back north and making his way all the way across the sea until he gets back ultimately to Jerusalem. Everybody understand me so far? Say amen. 
Really not complicated at all. Most of the ministry in Ephesus and the rest of the time, he's visiting churches that he had visited before, strengthening the disciples and encouraging the saints. But Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which is the subject of our focus last Sunday and this, is a classic textbook ministry, what we're calling ministry by the book. It's a ministry basically it's founded on two things, very simple things, Christianity 101. It's founded on the ministry of the Word of God and on the power of the Holy Spirit. Got it? The Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. May I say this morning, we live in an age of creativity, and I'm a big believer in creativity, but let me tell you, if you found your ministry on the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can run a ministry out of a barn, and you can see throngs of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And may I say, you probably won't be in the barn very long, as long as you're focused on the Word and absolutely dependent on the Spirit of God. Whenever ministry is done that way, ministry by the book, Three critical questions will always be addressed to the people to whom you're ministering, and we see that here in the first half of Acts chapter 19. The question we looked at last Sunday is this, are you sure you're saved? Now, I turned some people up on their head. My phone was ringing through the week, and my goal was not to get people uncertain. My point was to bring about assurance because the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life, and I believe that. A ministry, when it's done by the book, is not afraid to confront people. Confront people with the reality of sin, the need to be delivered from sin, challenge people to repent, challenge people to turn to Christ in saving faith. Acts 19 and 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. That would be John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, and say the name out loud, please, Jesus, that's right. This is the scene, of course, we looked at in the whole hour last Sunday where Paul arrives back in Ephesus and he encounters some disciples who we find out really are not so much disciples of Jesus as they are disciples of John the Baptist. They have an incomplete understanding of the gospel as Apollos had had, and they haven't been properly baptized, and nor had they been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so when you Look at the totality of it, and scholars are divided here about whether they really knew the Lord or not. I don't think they did, and I think that distinguishes them from Apollos, who we learned about in the passage before. I think these guys are kind of like Nicodemus and others that you see sometimes in the Bible who are religious but lost. Y'all understand you can be religious but lost. You can understand certain things theologically, but still not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that's transformed your heart, delivered you from sin, and enabled you to become a child of God. And so I think that that was the case here with these men. So what Paul does is he sets the record straight. These men get right with God. Then he sees that they're properly baptized, and they are indeed filled 
with the Holy Spirit, old things pass away in their lives, old th all things have now become new. And so mark it down, when we're doing ministry by the book, we're not afraid to confront people with the reality of Jesus, the reality of sin, and encourage people, turn from sin, turn to Christ, be born again, become a child of God, because apart from Christ, you have nothing to look forward to but death and separation from God. We must confront people. We do confront people with the reality that Jesus alone is Savior, Jesus alone is Lord. May our hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Somebody say amen this morning. Are you sure you're saved? Now let's move into some new territory this morning by asking a second question. Are you engaging others with the gospel? When ministry is being done in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the book, we're going to encourage the people of God to engage others with the gospel because a gospel received should be a gospel shared. And we see that here beginning in verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke, how? Boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, it won't surprise many people here today, I'm sure, that when Paul gets into Ephesus, the first thing that he does is he begins by going to the synagogue, entering the synagogue, and engaging those within the synagogue with the gospel of Jesus Christ, Torah in hand, Word of the Lord in hand, he's engaging them in the synagogue from the scriptures. That was his custom. In fact, the first thing Paul does is go back to the synagogue in Ephesus because at the end of his second missionary journey, he landed in Ephesus only briefly. And for the entire time that he was there in his previous missionary journey, supposedly, he just spent time there in the synagogue. They liked what Paul had to say. He found a receptive audience there among the Ephesian Jews, and they urged him, continue with us. We want to know more. But Paul, of course, was in a hurry uh, to get back to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, we suppose, and uh, he abruptly takes his leave, promising to come back if the Lord willed it. Well, can we say this morning, the Lord willed it, and he comes back, and he spends the longest single period of time that he does in any one place here in this important metropolis of Ephesus. He's there in the synagogue, the Bible says, for three months. And he's drawing those Jews of Ephesus this persuasive verbal portrait of what Luke says is the kingdom of God. That's the focus of his preaching, uh, which was no different than the focus of the preaching of Jesus. Those were the first ministry words of our Lord when he burst on the scene, fresh from his baptism and the temptation experience of the devil in the wilderness, he began to preach, Jesus did, repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. It was the same thing that John the Baptist had been preaching to set up the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we see the apostle Paul focusing 
on the rule of God and the reign of God and the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom having come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, but as had been the case in just about every other city, after a while, once this got drawn out and once it got explained in depth, uh, there were some who just couldn't handle it. And some can't handle what I'm preaching on Sunday morning. And they can't handle it because it pierces. And they can't handle it because it's exclusive. It focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ as our only hope. And that's problematic to a lot of people. These Jews could not handle that God was accomplishing his plan to bring a lost world back to himself through a person, a Nazarene peasant like Jesus Christ. As Paul would later say, the message of the cross was generally what? A stumbling block to Jews. And he finds that once again, he'll write that to the Corinthians based on his experience fresh on his mind in Corinth. There were some who believed, yes, and we praise the Lord for those who responded to the message of Paul. But the message once again was mostly rejected. And some disliked it so much, they began to agitate and stir the pot, as my grandmother would say. Stirring up trouble in order to silence Paul and maintain the status quo. Now, of course, the controversy revolved around the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the sole way to God. The Bible says here, they spoke evil of the way. Or can we say it this way? They, they spoke evil of the way because there'd be only one way to God. And Jesus affirmed that, John 14, 6, didn't he? Maybe the most controversial thing Jesus ever said. I, myself, and I alone. Ego, I, me. It's intensive. When you put the noun with the verb, it's an intensive. I, myself, and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except by me. So as Paul preached the kingdom, this is the focus of the kingdom. Redemption in Christ alone. And it got him in big trouble. He's presenting Jesus not simply as one of a myriad of possible ways to God. He's presenting Jesus as the singular exclusive way to God. And that's the most divisive teaching of all, particularly in this 21st century world of pluralism, where we want options, we want choices, whether it be concerning our retirement, our health coverage, the options on our car, we want options, we want choices. So when the environment got too disruptive, and disruptive it indeed got once again, Paul did the same thing that he did in Corinth. You remember what happened in Corinth on the second missionary journey? Same thing happened. They began to stir the pot, those Jews did, and Paul left shaking his cloak out, shaking the dust. Your blood be on your own head. I have been responsible and obedient to the Lord. I have shared the gospel truth with you, and if you want to reject it, then you are now responsible for your own eternal salvation or lack thereof. And he leaves, and he takes, he takes his traveling gospel ministry right across the street from the synagogue. Bold, 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 bold. And he begins to preach, and there's more people eventually, I think, showing up in the house across the street than showing up in the synagogue on Sunday, and that's what got him in real trouble. 
And he does the same thing here, only he leaves the synagogue. And in Ephesus, he rents out a lecture hall, the hall of Tyrannus. The word translated hall there is the Greek skole, which we get our English word school from it. That's why on college campuses you see all these things called hall, so-and-so hall, so-and-so hall, literally school. They're houses of learning. Now, we don't know if Tyrannus was the primary lecturer in the hall. This is the hall of Tyrannus who is a teacher who comes here on a daily basis to educate folks and enlighten folks in the Greek philosophy of the day. Or if Tyrannus was the owner of the hall, the hall belonging to Tyrannus, or maybe it was both. Maybe he owned the hall and maybe he was the principal teacher. But this was a place of teaching. This was a place of learning, the place of sharing ideas. And likely it was available to Paul in the afternoon. We don't know that, but there are certain texts that indicate that Paul actually, they, had, they have glosses in the text that indicate that Paul taught at the at the school of Tyrannus or at the hall of Tyrannus in the late afternoon. I don't know if you know it or not, but even in Ephesus, as is the case with Spain, they siested most of the day in the afternoon. Got really hot. So people got up really early. They started business early in the day. They worked till about lunchtime. And then they took a siesta. And the old adage was in Ephesus, there would be more people asleep at one o'clock in the afternoon than there would be at one o'clock in the morning which having been to Spain this year is the gospel truth today. Man, they don't come out till 8 o'clock at night, and then they stay up half the night. I never did get adjusted to that schedule. And so what happened was Paul probably got up, made tents in the morning, subsidizing his income, together with Aquila and Priscilla, and then probably went and taught the gospel in the school of Tyrannus in the afternoon. It's a hardworking man. And for anybody that would come, whether they be Jews who responded favorably uh, favorably to the gospel or Greek-speaking Gentiles, it didn't matter to Paul. And that's why this was, it's kind of a good deal for him to get out of the synagogue and get into a place like this because what did Paul do? He broadened his audience. Anybody was welcome to come, Greeks and other non-Jews, naturally included in this kind of ministry. In fact, this is the kind of thing that's done all over the world today by churches, by many of our missionaries who engage in missions in hard places where it's just difficult to put a sign up that says First Baptist Church. And so what they do is they engage in what's called platforms, and they run their ministries out of places like gymnasiums or coffee houses, or warehouses, all kinds of platforms. In fact, when we were in Spain, we hit the streets with these beautiful color brochures to support the church that we were working with, the small little evangelical church there. And the way that they connected with their community was not so much to present themselves as a church, but to present themselves as a place of learning, a place of support, a place of connection, and so they promoted counseling services. They promoted things like divorce care. They promoted things like English as a second language, basic health care, and this was their, their entree into the community. You can get help and support for things like this, and then when we get you here, we're going to give you a heavy dose of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is really the thing that you need the most. 
And that's just taking it to the streets, man. That's becoming all things to all men that by all possible means that do not conflict with the character and the word of God so that some people might be saved. Now, Paul and his missionary team was committed to that very thing. In fact, they were determined to engage the lost culture. And they did it by a variety of means, and it was very effective. The Bible says that could, he, he made it in the synagogue for three months. He continued to teach in the school of Tyrannus for two years. So his ministry became very effective, and we know that it actually began to spread outward from Ephesus. Paul led probably a young man named Epaphras. We don't know that Paul led him to the Lord, but we presume that he did there in in Ephesus. This was probably where Paul met Philemon, who has a little book in the Bible by his name. Philemon was a businessman from Colossae, probably was led to the Lord there in Ephesus by Paul. Paul sent Epaphras out. Epaphras went to Colossae, probably founded the church at Colossae, which was a church that Paul did not, find, uh, but did not start. Eph- uh, Epaphras probably did. And from Ephesus, the gospel begins to go all over Asia, the Bible says. And churches are started in places like Laodicea and Thyatira and Pergamum and Smyrna and Philadelphia. Do any of those churches sound familiar to anybody in the house? Those are the Asian churches surrounding Ephesus that the Lord Jesus Christ dictated letters to via the Apostle John. And those churches were not necessarily all started by Paul, but they can all be indirectly related to the ministry of Paul, I think, in Ephesus. So can you see that we got good things going on in Ephesus? Because Paul took the gospel to the streets. He engaged people to the gospel in a way that was open and accessible. And the transforming message of the way, the way, who was Jesus, bled out into the surrounding areas. Now, you should know by now, community engagement is one of our core values here at Hillcrest. Hillcrest exists to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God and connecting with others and serving the world. That's right. Serving the world, engaging the world with the gospel. Are you engaging your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you sure you're saved? Are you engaging others with the gospel that has saved you? May I say this morning, we must do better. I must do better. We all must do better because this is something every believer, not just the paid clergy, not just the professional clergy, everybody is called who possesses the gospel to share the gospel And it's a challenge given by every church who's doing ministry by the book. Y'all hanging with me? Amen? Are you sure you're saved? Are you engaging others with the gospel? Then a third question posed by churches doing ministry by the book. Are you willing to surrender anything? that would compromise your allegiance to Christ? That's a pointed question. Are you willing and have you surrendered in and everything that would compromise your allegiance 
your undivided loyalty to Jesus Christ. This is a third vignette that Luke gives us from Paul's Ephesian campaign, and it's one of the most dramatic, one of the most unusual spiritual encounters that you'll find in all of Acts. It kind of has a comedic element that makes me chuckle a little bit every time that I read it. But ultimately, there's a very serious message involved that you see at the end of the, of the vignette, and that is this critical truth. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. Christ Jesus will have no rivals. He'll have no rivals. Have you ever heard a preacher say it? If not, you're going to hear it today. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We love to compartmentalize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, I'll let Jesus be Lord over this and over this and over this. But I'm going to maintain lordship over this. And most of the time it has to do with money, property, possessions. I'll take care of that. But I'll give the Lord most everything else. No, we don't have that right. He's either Lord of everything or you really can't say he's Lord. Now, this is a challenge. None of us are perfect here, and I get that. It's part of discipleship, learning that if anything is placed alongside Jesus Christ as an object of your attention, affection, of your loyalty, it becomes an idol in your life. And so Jesus demands undivided loyalty, and nothing's more important than that in the life of a growing disciple. uh, Unconditional allegiance. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Seva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who in the wide world are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, or in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Man, you got to love that. Amen. John Stott calls this a power encounter, and that's what it was. What this is basically is a power grab by a bunch of Jewish traveling exorcists, seven of them to be precise. They're sons of a Jewish high priest named Seva. Now, some of you may have heard of the Jewish historian Josephus, and we have Josephus to thank for giving us a continuum list of all of the Jewish high priests in Jerusalem up till the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. May I say this morning, ain't nobody named Seva on his list. This is not a Jewish high priest. He probably either gave himself that title or his sons gave him that title in order to give him a degree of legitimacy. But may I say, Brother Seva is not legit. He is not. Now, he may have come from a priestly family of some kind 
or from some kind of a priestly line, but he was never a Jewish high priest. That was a false claim in order to get him standing because there were Jewish exorcists in the first century. And you can imagine, man, people today are enamored with the spiritual and things associated with the occult. And, you know, I can remember when I was growing up, man, it was all about going to see the exorcist at the movie theater. And Damien, I mean, if you could sneak in and see the exodus, you had arrived. Damien, omen two, right? I mean, we're just enamored with this kind of stuff. You ought not do that, by the way. And nothing healthy about any of that. But people then, you can go to the Middle East today and most of the souvenir stores will have an evil eye hanging from a keychain that you can buy to ward off evil spirits. The superstition is still there even to this day. And so people were fascinated by that. They were fascinated by demon possession. And there were itinerant Jewish exorcists that wandered around the ancient world. Highly superstitious. They loved incantations, spells, things associated with magic. Have you all noticed how many magicians we've run into in our study, the book of Acts? Just about everywhere they go, there's a magician somewhere, a soothsayer, an occultist. And that's the case again here. In fact, these Jewish exorcists weren't exclusively Jewish in the way they went about their business. If it gathered them an audience, they would utilize the names of foreign gods if it made a connection with other people because this is how they made their living, ostensibly. And so what happens is they've been watching Paul. And Paul had the ability to perform miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was preaching the word in the power of the Spirit, and it was not uncommon for the apostle Paul to perform a miracle that God would, God would perform the miracle through Paul in order to validate the message that Paul was preaching so that people could better hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. And they'd observe that. Paul performing, uh, performing those miracles in Ephesus, doing them in Jesus' name. In fact, look back up a couple of verses to uh, Acts 19, 11, and 12. And God was doing extraordinary what? Miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. These were garments that Paul probably wore while he was making tents. He would sweat through them. Somehow they got disseminated out. Kind of brings up the image of the woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment and being healed of the issue of of blood, the hemorrhage that she had. Y'all remember that story? So that was happening here. Those garments that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the what? The evil spirits came out of them. So God's spirit was on Paul. And it was on Paul with such power that even some of those garments that touched him had enough power to heal the sick and to relieve those who were oppressed by the demons of darkness. God gave Paul that anointing again for a purpose. It was to authenticate his message, the gospel message, as was the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. Miracles validated the message of the gospel. They weren't given just to perform a show. They were given for a purpose so people could hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and be saved. So may I say this morning, uh, I wouldn't put, you, put a whole lot of stock 
in ordering one of those prayer cloths from your favorite television evangelist who wants you to send in $50 to his ministry and he'll send you. Have y'all ever seen that? Can I just say, give the money to missions because it's just a cloth. You know what Luke is doing here? Luke is describing events for us. He is not proscribing events for us. There's a difference between the two. He's telling us what happened there. Not that this was something that was going to be seen by the church until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these exorcists go for a power grab, and they assume, here's the deal. If the name of Jesus was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us. So we're going to cast a few devils out using the God that he uses. Only it didn't work. In fact, it backfired. You better not play fast and loose with the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, the name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. You have authority over the demonic, but only in the name of Jesus. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you in the name of Jesus. But may I say, you better have Jesus in your life. When you do, you have the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can resist the devil and he'll what? Flee from you. These bad boys did not have the name of Jesus in their life. They didn't have the authority of Jesus, so they play fast and loose with the name of Jesus And you can see when the demons hear the name of Jesus, they say, you know what? We know that name. We know Jesus. And we recognize Paul because he's like full of Jesus. So we recognize what he's doing and we recognize what Jesus is doing. In fact, when y'all ever notice that whenever a demon is is confronted with either Jesus himself or the name of, he always knows who Jesus is. We're the only people running around wondering who Jesus may or may not be. Every devil alive knows who Jesus is. And we know him, and we recognize Paul, who's ministering in the name of Jesus. But they were really annoyed by these yahoos, who neither knew the Lord, nor were they possessed by the Spirit of God. And the aftermath is kind of a bloody mess because you got this picture, man, I'm just telling you, everybody was kung fu fighting. And it was like these guys fighting the invisible man. I mean, they were fighting a guy in flesh and blood that takes on all of them and the power of these demons. And literally what happens is these demons slap these exorcists naked and then hide their clothes. And by the way, that's a good way to judge the level of success when you're having a fight. If, if when the fight is over, you don't have any pants on, you probably didn't win the fight. <laughs> but let me tell you what's important. What's important is not kind of what's in the story that makes us chuckle a little bit. What's important is what happens next. Because I don't think the demons recognize it, but they play right into the hands of the Apostle Paul here. Because what's important is is the radical change that results in many people who witness the power of God and then respond to that with faith. Verse 18, and many of those who were now believers 
in the aftermath of this, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. By the way, that's how you know when you've genuinely repented. You turn to Christ and you turn away from everything that is anti-Christ. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books, their spell books, together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And let's just put that in context. How many pieces of silver did Judas sell out the Lord Jesus Christ for? 30 pieces of silver. So the value of all these books that are being brought together, 50,000 pieces of silver. Can we say that's a boatload of money? I mean, those magic books, uh, they were elaborately designed, elaborately illustrated. They were of great value. A person who owned one of those, you know, because of the superstition, they had these incantations and spells in them, but they were beautiful books to look at. You can go to Europe, uh, to Europe and go throughout numbers of museums, and you'll find some of these very books in the museum houses that dot Europe and the Middle East. And people would pay a pretty penny. This was like, kind of like the alabaster oil that the woman who anointed Jesus owned. You remember how much that cost? An entire year's wage. You know, it was very valuable well, people who own this, these books, they had a very valuable commodity, a very valuable possession. People would pay a pretty penny for it. And that's why these new believers who come, who confess their sinful past, and then voluntarily and publicly burn those books, those demonic occultic books, was a remarkable sign that their faith was real, their life had been changed. If you would have asked them in the aftermath, are you sure that you've been saved? Are you sure that you've been born again? They'd be able to say yes and back it up by the way they responded to the gospel. Because in Christ, we are new creatures. Old things, what? Pass away. All things become New And for these people, their new loyalty was undivided. It was marked by a brand new direction. We live in a day-to-day of rampant idolatry. It's just of a different sort. And all of us know people. Maybe there's some in the house today who are like that. We want to include Jesus on a list of important parts of our life. But you can't say Jesus is Lord if he's just included on the list. Can I say Jesus doesn't want to be on your list? Our Lord Jesus wants to be the list. He is the list. He's at the very heart. Everything radiates out from your, direction, or from your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Christ will not share the stage with any actor. He'll suffer no rival. He'll tolerate no competitor Undivided loyalty is a central component of the gospel and a critical element when a ministry is being done by the book. A church will encourage people not only to surrender to Christ, but to follow him exclusively as Lord. And this is why Jesus said so many of the things that he did. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? 
for any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Strong words, but it reminds us that Jesus is the risen Lord, the very God in the flesh, and he will have no other gods before him. Let me ask you again. Are you sure you've been saved? Are you engaging others with the gospel? Are you willing and have you surrendered any and everything that could compromise your undivided loyalty to Jesus Christ? This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen.